My name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our show today is featuring Mr. Gary Cunningham, who is the Metropolitan Council member for District 7. He's also the president and CEO of the Metropolitan Economic Development Association. We talked with Mr. Cunningham about racial disparities in the state of Minnesota and in the Twin Cities region. Uh, Minnesota often makes the best of lists, uh, whether it's in terms of parks or way of life or food scene, but what often gets left behind or left out of these is that there are many people who are not uh, enjoying these benefits, that we also top the list in a lot of categories for racial disparities, whether it's workforce retention, housing, education, many other different things. And what is our state and community doing to fix these and address these problems? Uh, because uh, it should be a case, like Paul Wellstone said, where we all do better when we all do better. And so how do we ensure that uh, these problems can be fixed or turned around, and what are different organizations working on in terms of solutions in order to fix these things? I'd also like to give thanks to our media sponsor for this season of shows, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more at www.minpost.com. All right. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Hi. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Tane. <clears throat> I'm so excited. I, it's weird. It's weird to say. I'm so excited. We're going to talk about racial disparities. All right. Yeah. No. I, and but this is actually. Uh, I am very excited to talk about this, and particularly with you, because uh, this is something that you have worked on both, sort of in a, a public sector space, but then also uh, looked at it from an academic space and then also as a, a Metropolitan Council official. And so you bring a lot of this to the table. And, and I'm just wondering sort of, uh, I don't know, if you want to give us sort of a, a state of where we are here in the Twin Cities from maybe some of those different perspectives as to lay the groundwork. Uh, well, I, I guess, you know, I, I grew up here in Minneapolis and uh, it's, the issue of race has always been an issue, so ever since I can remember. So when I was in high school and I wrote for the high school newspaper, I was writing about issues of racial inequalities. And so I bring it many years later, and we're still having that same conversation that we were Do you were feel like if then. you had written a better article in the high school newspaper, <laughs> we would have well, fixed it? I don't know. When I look back at that stuff, I think I was I was I was pre- much more radical than I am now. So tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> like what? what uh, well, you know, I mean, back then, wounded knee was happening, yeah. and you know, there was uh, all kinds of uh, issues around uh, voting rights yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So it was a different different reality. So you say the, the conversation, uh, we're still having the conversation, but I do, I've got to imagine there are elements of it that have changed or the, the, the breadth of it perhaps or the intensity, I guess. How has it yeah. changed in that time? Well, I think, I think the, um, when I grew up here, there weren't as many people of color. So it wasn't the kind of diverse community we have today. Uh, and so uh, the Latino community that's grown up here didn't exist at the time, the Somali community. Uh, uh, the uh, largest uh, minority groups were Native American and African American at that time. So it was a different, it was yeah. a different uh, context. Uh, but you still had the seeds of uh, segregation 
which I think sits at the root of some of the disparities we have. So the issue of African Americans living in certain communities, Native Americans living in certain communities at that time has really grown to what they call concentrated areas of poverty now, which are pretty significant in our area. In fact, they're, they're the largest uh, growth that we've seen is of uh, these areas of concentrated poverty. And, and help, uh, help us wrap our heads around that. What uh, concentrated area of poverty? Uh, right. Well, some call them racially concentrated areas. And so those are areas within the Twin Cities uh, that have uh, uh, multiple things going on. One, uh, they have a high uh, concentration of people of color. Uh, many of the people living below the poverty line. Uh, and many people uh, uh, of one race or multiracial in one area is a concentrated area of poverty. So uh, you uh, have taught for a long time at the, the Humphrey School, have been associated. I'm a graduate of the Humphrey School. And All so, right! Yeah, but as a good... As a good public policy student, right, like the first thing that we're supposed to do is sort of articulate, what is the problem? And um, uh, I, in, in this case, it seems like, oh, uh, the problem is very obvious. But nonetheless, I think it's valuable to articulate sort yeah. of like what well, is the well, I specific think, I think, uh, well, I think it's a number of things. So I don't think there's just one problem. I I'm sorry. It's a one-page paper. These so. issues are multifaceted. So, um, uh, so if you look at it, when you create communities, part of the reason you create those communities is to create opportunity so that people actually can grow and people can work and people can get to and from work and people can actually participate. So if you can't participate or you're, you don't have access to uh, these, uh, these uh, uh, bases, these kind of like uh, uh, things that make us all better human beings, then it changes the kind of dynamics of hope that you would have for the future. So this is like a, the, a term that you use there is very interesting and I think is a, a big part of the conversation we want to have, which is you talked about when we create these communities. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people sometimes have a notion, oh, a community is organic. It just sort of springs up and, and emerges. Uh, and then maybe later we set boundaries around it or we define it somehow. But uh, I think that it's much more complicated than that. And I'm wondering. No, if no, no. These communities actually were created in Minneapolis by race. So if you look at where the projects were in North Minneapolis, that area was actually part of a, a consent decree that came down because they were putting all the black people from uh, public housing in the, those areas. The same thing happened with the. Native American community to the Latino community, et cetera. So we, we, public policy, has created what we see. But this went on all over the country. So it wasn't like Minnesota was unique or Minneapolis or Twin Cities was unique. These kind of dynamics. So when, for example, uh, the key factors in the, uh, the building of the white middle class, as an example, was uh, home ownership. Right? Well, the FHA actually had a policy that basically said that if you were African-American, you couldn't participate. If you were a white person trying to move into a community where black people live, you couldn't participate in FHA. Or uh, the, uh, the uh, 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 issue around uh, veterans, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Like of the it. GI Bill? GI Bill, same thing. So all of these 
kind of structures got set up around race, and we're living with the legacy of those structures. And uh, one more piece sort of on the history here, which is, and, and this maybe starts bringing us into the present, uh, Minnesota, even though it, this was something that happened in a lot of places around the country, sort of remains the worst in a lot of these cases. We have some of the largest gaps in terms of education and income and employment and mm -hmm. whatnot. Mm -hmm. So uh, why, if, it, if it, that kind of stuff, if it was happening all over, why have we not started to close some of that as quickly maybe as other communities? Well, there's are. different theories around this, and I've heard a lot of different theories. In fact, I heard one theory by one researcher that said it's because white people are so smart here that that's the reason that... <laughs> Did they say that to you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Or oh, yeah, said it, said it publicly. Uh, said, well, you know, we're, you know, we're uh, Lake Wobegon, and so our, all of our kids are a little brighter and smarter, and all, all of us are brighter and smarter, and the blacks or the Latinos happen not to be as smart, so oh, that's why we have this variation. This was a researcher now, has a PhD. Yeah, because um, wouldn't, we wouldn't get away with that in comedy, so it's amazing you can write a PhD around that. So, <laughs> uh, so here we, uh, when I was, a, you know, recently uh, this year, uh, I asked, and the and the council staff actually did what they call a regression analysis. Oh, I'm aware. Yeah, we're no, of regression. I spent a lot of nights streaming no, regression, regression analysis. Analysis. So All anyway, right. you were saying. All right, we don't want to talk about what you do no, at, at uh, home no. in bed and all of that. Yeah, with my but, data. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> all right, uh, but, but here, here's the deal. So we actually looked at, we said, okay, a lot of people say it's education where you get the gap, right? Mm -hmm. And so we used that as a factor. We equalized everybody's education, and we still had a gap. Oh, then we said, oh, it's, uh, it's probably transportation, we equalized that. They said it was housing. Then we said, oh, it's, you know, single-parent households. We equalized 14 different factors, and we still found significant gaps between whites and blacks and whites and Latinos and whites and Asians in the Twin Cities area. So after you get done peeling the onion down, right, it, it really comes down to discrimination. Oh, no. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, I mean, the fact is is that uh, when we looked at income or wages, as an example, uh, we found that uh, even when we took everything into account, there was still about a $7,600 gap. So that's the black tax, right? I call it the black tax. So I get a tax of, of $7,500 less than you would make in the same job. By chance, has, has Donald Trump promised to repeal that tax? Or? <laughs> well, you know, I, you know uh, Donald Trump has, re has agreed to repeal every tax but those that help low-income blacks. That's specific. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I, then I, I guess there's a question then built in that. So if the, if the answer or if the, the a baseline of this is something – is racism, is, uh, is um, stereotypes and prejudices, uh, I, I guess, you know, public policy people, what are we supposed to do? Uh, it well, seems like we should be writing poetry or something or going in <laughs> and, like, knocking on doors and shaking people. Um, well, well, let me say this. You know, uh, uh, absent other explanation, right, meaning – there might be some other reason out there. there uh, one of the factors could be race, meaning that, you know, the fact that my skin is different. In fact, I did a study 
of I, where I looked at African and African foreign born and African US born and I went back to 1990 2000 2010 so when many of the uh, East Africans came here they actually were better off than they are today uh, they are actually poorer less education so I couldn't tell uh, African American in 2014 from uh, African-American foreign-born from an African-American U.S.-born, the data was almost exact, hmm. right? Meaning, so they, the, the idea they came in at a higher level and went downward. Yeah, why? Uh, well, I think because of the color of their skin. Oh. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. There you go. But then what do we do about, I mean, that's sort of what I'm trying to get well, to is like, yeah, so if yeah, that's yeah, built, yeah. if that's what where we are, well, uh, think, it seems like we more just need to like uh, talk about it or talk to people. I, are there public policy answers, solutions, I do. I do think there are, and I do think there's different ways to approach this. There's work going on all around the country around this issue, and it's a couple of things. One is we have to create... Uh, communities that are mixed income, mixed race communities where everybody shares an opportunity and where zip code doesn't determine your outcome. Uh, and people talk about like black on black crime, but you don't hear them talk about white on white crime when there's as many white people killing each other as black people, but we don't talk about it in that way. We frame it in a different way. So this is, uh, and we've done shows around housing policy and things before, and the the critique of that, that we need more mixed income is often, well, that means, you know, uh, that we should basically create, put uh, low-income housing in um, areas that are traditionally white or whatever. Uh, it doesn't mean the reverse of that, perhaps, or because that's... Oh, sure it does. It means, it means, it means create communities where everybody can thrive so we have a zero-sum mentality when we think about these things and so the way we framed them both on both sides of the argument both on the uh, liberal side as well as on the conservative side we frame these things as if they're zero-sum relationships mm -hmm. and so uh, people think about the term equity and they think about I got to give up something for somebody else to get something and, and in fact, uh, I would argue that uh, uh, we can create communities that have the type of amenities, good schools, good uh, conveniences, amenities in terms of restaurants and all those things in all the communities we live in, uh, but we have to have the political and public will to do so. Uh, and we don't, have, we don't seem to have that will. Uh, not until we get to the worst place in the United States do we start to take some action to address some of these issues. So I'd say it's that, but I think it's further than that. I also think it's about relationships. So when I was the county administrator in Scott County, as an example, one of the things we did was we built Humphrey students around uh, my, my directors. And because they never had an interaction with people of color, uh, uh, they had stereotypes that were playing out and once they developed relationships all of a sudden they they could see the other person as a human being not as this foreigner that is going to attack me or do something to me and so this idea of creating belonging so that everybody is really belongs in the circle of human concerns and creating relationships so when we think about how many relationships we have with other people that are different from us and how do we foster and cultivate those relationships? That really matters because it brings different perspectives to the table. 
Uh, I think I sent you a little note about my uh, Montana experience. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk a little? Do you want to say uh, Sure. That, yeah. I'll, I'll go into that because it has a happy ending. Good. You were after a happy ending, right? Um, so uh, I used to work for the Northwest Area Foundation. I was the vice president, and they serve an eight-state area. And I was on a funders tour with some big funders that were uh, people at the same level as me. Two uh, white gentlemen and two, one African-American and myself. And we had toured a native reservation, uh, the Crow Reservation, uh, which is a very poor place, probably one of the poorest places outside of uh, Pine Ridge. Um, and uh, we spent the whole day there. And, and, and uh, if you've been to a number of reservations, they have long ceremonies go on a long time. So we get back to the hotel, and we're having dinner. And one of the guys says, well, I wouldn't fund them. And I was like, really? You wouldn't fund them? Why? Why wouldn't you fund them? Well, they wouldn't meet my standards. And the other white guy says, well, yeah, I wouldn't fund them either. I said, well, you know, if you're going to work in Indian country, you might need to kind of calibrate your standards to not you know, take people where they're at, not where you want them to be. And uh, the one guy gets mad. He gets, like, red in the face and gets angry and says, oh, those Indians, they don't want to do anything. They just want to drink and have babies and, you know, et cetera. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay. Right? I can feel my own tension rising in the dynamic. And instead of me responding in the, in the habitual way, I asked him, I said, why are you angry? What's, what is your anger about? And he kind of changes the – because he didn't really realize he was getting angry and red and upset. He didn't even know any Indian people before this trip. So this anger came from somewhere that he'd have to change or be different than how he was for Indian people in order to fund him. So to make a long story short, the next day we're riding horses in the it, it, right it's outside. It's just a very romantic trip we're, for we you are, all. We're riding horses. I don't want to go on the kind of horse I had, but... <laughs> I don't even. But I didn't even think about what kind of horse it would be until right. you said that. We're was right. it a pony? Was it like a tiny horse? Was it like? It was called Big John. Okay. <laughs> Here's to that. That was worth a drink. Yeah, that was good. Uh, All right. Anyway, so we're riding. So you're riding on Big John. Go on. Um, we're riding horses. We're going on a horseback ride. So this was a multimodal trip. So we flew in planes. We you know, did all this uh, different kind of modes. But we were riding horses that day. And we're out in this beautiful valley. And uh, one of the, you know, as we're riding, the stuff from the night before came, started coming out. And the guy says, you know, um, I was wrong last night. I didn't, you know, I mean, he had this kind of epiphany. And I said, you know, hey, you know, none of us really know what we're doing here. We're just trying to do the what we're doing. What if we went on a learning tour of native country and brought our foundations together? That ended up being 27 foundations together that combined their resources to fund in Indian country. And the two guys that had the was, were in at the meeting gave more money to Indian country than any of the others combined. Wow. So this really, they had a transformational experience out of that experience, and it led them to really not just out of guilt, 
but really deeply understanding the communities that they come into contact with. It seems with. like what you're saying then is that we need like a Gary Cunningham to be like therapists for more <laughs> like foundation no. presidents. What I'm that saying, we just need to set you up on horseback riding dates. If I, if I would have responded in this habitual way and called them white supremacists, we probably, that, argue, that discussion wouldn't have went on very far. The fact that I was able to have a real discussion with them hold that anger in and allow the conversation to move forward that I was able to see their humanity even at a time when it was difficult allowed for a new conversation to happen. And so what I see today is a lot of uh, uh, name calling, uh, putting people in boxes, uh, and neither side gets to the point of actually solving the problem because of the anger. Uh, just another quick story. I was in uh, Portland, and I was working with a group called the Coalition of Communities of Color. John Powell, who used to be here, to, uh, works at the Institute, the Haas Institute in uh, California. He and I were working uh, on this. Uh, Portland is known for multimodal transit, mm -hmm. et cetera. And the guy that was like the godfather, he's a council member there, Metropolitan Council member, Robert Liberty, Robert uh, came to John and I said, you know, when we designed the Portland transit system in the 90s, we didn't take in consideration communities of color, and, and I'm responsible for that. And I said, well, we're working with this group uh, on, uh, you know, them having access to transit. Why don't you come talk to them? He came in, and he gave one of the best apologies I've ever heard. I mean, he basically owned the problem. He owned that he created part of the problem. Uh, and the group, I thought, oh, we're, you know, we're on to something here, right? And what happened was uh, he, uh, they couldn't hear him. Hmm. And so they rejected him, right, I mean, in that meeting. They said, you know, we're not going to accept your apology. We're not going to accept any of this. You're going to do the same thing. Yeah. So this issue of trying to get past yeah. that, they eventually <clears throat> did, but, but the, the, the whole idea is is that we can't accept each other's humanity and then say, okay, where do we go from here? Because yeah. if we stay where we're at, we're going to stay stuck. So, okay, and yeah, we yeah. are going to open it up for audience questions in the second half. Uh, there's, there are several uh, policy things I wanted to ask you about, but just in the interest of time, and yeah, since you brought yeah. up transportation, you're a Met Council member. Are we thinking then enough about um, addressing some of these inequities with the transportation policy that – uh, I don't think so. I don't think. I don't think so. I think that uh, when you look at how the transportation is uh, dollars are uh, allocated, uh, and you think about where our transit is going now, I don't think it's uh, uh, going to address the problem in the long term. I do think that we've worked hard to try to get at some of the issues, but when you look at North Minneapolis as an right. example, or you look at uh, South Central Minneapolis for that, or East St. Paul, those transit investments aren't happening uh, to the level they need to. So I guess the you know what's what's the holdup? Is it that we have built a system that is inherently uh, somewhat top down in that way that the the project almost is de defined before maybe the need is defined? Uh, I think the problem is is that race matters. 
place matters and that we don't take those things into consideration as we're making these decisions and so you know people want to be race neutral and they want to create race neutral solutions when you've created a situation that's built upon race it's hard to go back and then say now we're going to be oh you're a hundred yards ahead in the race and by the way we're going to start now and you've got a race so let's let's start from there no we really have to do what I call, um, uh, we have to take into account the, the, uh, the, the uh, positions of people in their relationship to opportunity and groups. And then we have to consider that in terms of the investments that we're making. So what is it, let's just use, let's keep going with transportation as a specific example. What does that look like? You know, we're uh, working now on, on something like Southwest Light Rail. We have things like the sea line potentially coming on, a bus rapid transit, and then we talk about Botano, which would go up through North right. Minneapolis. But mm. there's even questions there about where would it stop? Would it hit the communities that it needs to hit? And so, well, uh, well, let me say this. Uh, uh, so uh, part of the issue uh, is, uh, you know, the sea line in part got created out of a negotiation around the the alignment of Botano. And I was involved with that, so there wouldn't have been a sea line unless we negotiated that. Is there going to be a sea line? Well, there's still we're still waiting on 17 million dollars. Does anybody have 17 million dollars <laughs> to fill the uh, gap, right? But we're spending now. Just a minute, we're spending, you know, four billion dollars. But we don't have 17 million dollars. Wait, who spent? You mean this on, the, on on both of those rail lines? Right. But then all of a sudden we don't have 17 million dollars. You get what I'm getting at? So it's like, okay. So you're saying so, that Southwest Light Rail should, you know, not go to Eden Prairie. That's what you've just no, said, Council Member. I didn't say I that. Believe. I think you're putting words in my mouth. I, you know, my from my from my uh, uh, belief is that. Unless we do something different, we're going to get the same results we've been getting. So if we continue down the road we've been continuing down, where we don't take into account uh, these communities. Now, that doesn't mean we don't think about the, the uh, uh, majority, but we also have to think about the minority within the right. – and so we have to keep both of those things in mind. And I think, historically, it's demonstrated that we've been thinking about the majority. Power matters, right? And the minority hasn't had the power here. Okay, I have so many more questions, but we got to turn it over to our cast. Again, I promise we're going to open it up for questions from all of you in the second half of the show. But for right now, can we do a big round of applause? Gary Cunningham, everybody. Okay, so I'm going to come around for questions. Uh, just real quick, uh, I wanted to give you all a heads up. Uh, our, our computer here is having a little bit of a, a snafu, so uh, checks at the end may take a little bit longer. Uh, be patient with uh, the wonderful Bryant Lake Ball staff. <laughs> all right. Okay, so if you have a question, raise your hand. I will race towards you in a non-threatening manner. I like it when the questions start in the back because it makes it easy. I can just come back down and I just, hey, yeah, hello. Hello. Uh, what are the relationships between racially or racially concentrated areas of poverty and racially concentrated areas of wealth? Uh, they're, they're definitely a relationship. We map both of those areas, and what we find is they're uh, basically the opposite of each other, meaning that where, where poor people aren't, pretty wealthy people are. In the middle, what we find in the Twin Cities, as an example, is the inner ring suburbs become the, the, the ground in between. So particularly in the western suburbs, you see uh, uh, a lot of wealth. 
less so in uh, the uh, areas uh, like Richfield or Brooklyn Park, Brooklyn Center, et cetera. So you have this demilitarized zone. What we find also is, uh, is that uh, the interests uh, of working class, low-income whites get pitted against blacks. And so you see this kind of battle going on when their interests are really aligned uh, in terms of, of uh, how, how, so for example, you're, you can't create a, uh, a black middle class without expanding the white middle class in some real ways. In part because if white people aren't growing in terms of their, their actual position, it's not going to happen for African Americans. It's not going to happen for American Indians. So, so what's happened in this country, if you look at the wealth that has been generated, not just in place in areas, but also in space, meaning the tax code, all these things, you see that whites, uh, uh, particularly very wealthy whites, uh, end up making more and more money, and low-income people end up making a whole lot less money because of how things are structured. Uh, I'm going to come, uh, fun fact, and I, I read this several years ago. I'm not sh sure if this is still accurate, but at one point, uh, the Cedar Riverside neighborhood uh, and downtown Minneapolis had the largest gap between two zip codes in terms of wealth and poverty in the entire United States, I believe, of two juxtaposed zip codes right next to each other. Uh, the, the gap between those two is larger than any other two zip codes in the country that were sitting right next to each other. Yes, sure, good. Okay, so um, I'm going to just assume okay, I was right about right. that. Yeah, okay, so there was a, was there a hand uh, around here in the middle? Uh, this isn't an actual, you're just sort of, okay. Uh, oh, okay, back there, yes, good. Hi, um, Hi. my name is Nikki. Um, I live in Chicago right now, and Chicago is also a, a city that has many, many segregated neighborhoods. Um, and I was wondering what similarities the Twin Cities have um, to other cities that have sort of segregation and racial inequality problems. And I guess what are the similarities and what are the differences? Yeah, there. Um, so you know, we've looked all around the country at the top 25 metropolitan areas, and we find this issue, this pattern of uh, racial segregation, uh, is pretty pronounced, particularly in the northern. States. I don't know if you knew this, but Martin Luther King actually came to Chicago, lived there, tried to break down the barriers of segregation in Chicago, and ended up leaving uh, without having any impact and said the, the uh, racism in the uh, northern cities was as bad or worse than it was in the south. So just to give you that little bit of information. In terms of, uh, so these patterns of, you know, if you're a planner, you know that cities developed in certain ways. Uh, and in, uh, in, in each of these cities, uh, uh, what you've seen is a walling off and a redlining of people based on race. So Chicago is very similar to the Minneapolis. Uh, and so you have the south side of Chicago as an example. Here we have the north Minneapolis and Omaha. You have north Omaha and Cincinnati. You have north. So you have these areas that have basically been created uh, to maintain uh, separation by race within our communities. Now that some of the issues of legalized segregation has broken down, we're still living with the vestige of that. So if you look at uh, Chicago as an example, uh, and you see these high, high areas of lack of, of uh, resources, but also lack of education, 
right? So these, in these areas, you see that the schools aren't doing well. well. You'll see that the homes aren't uh, kept up and the structures aren't kept up. And in the same city, you see uh, areas that are very well kept up. The streets are paved, et cetera, et cetera. So the allocation, even public resources, aren't happening well. And we found that in both Minneapolis and St. Paul as well, is how do resources get allocated? Race mattered with regards to how resources get allocated in these major areas. Now, I don't know if that's fair. Do I know that guy? Yeah. Hello. Uh, <laughs> one, one of the big issues recently was the Met Council and the parks uh, equity funding, um, and this was around kind of allocating dollars to getting people of color to parks. And one of the people who opposed this uh, was Jane Miller of the Park Board, wrote a letter. I don't know if she opposed it kind of broadly or wrote a letter that kind of had a lot of opposition in it. But can you kind of address her concerns and, you know, why you think this is the right way to go? Well, and we should start by probably unpacking a little bit what, what the parks equity plan that actually is out there. Can you talk a little bit about what that is to yeah, start with? Yeah, I can. I, I do want to correct something in what you said. The last uh, piece that the Metropolitan Council uh, approved with regards to the parks was about getting people to parks. It wasn't about, it wasn't race, wasn't included in that. Uh, in the legacy funding that was handed down, there's a requirement that uh, that the uh, funding agencies, the uh, Minneapolis Park Board and Three Rivers Park District, et cetera, do more to uh, advertise and get people connected with outdoors. That's really what that was about. Somehow it got tied in with the equity picture and there's a relationship, but, the, but what we were actually voting on was to get more people out into the outdoors. They do this with the state. They spend much more at the state level than we're spending locally. And so we really were in accordance with the wishes of the uh, legacy fund, if you will. So that, I'll, I'll put it there. But we have, for the last couple of years, uh, and I'm the chair of the Community Development Committee, we have been working to get people of color more engaged in our regional parks, in part because we're all paying for this, and all of these folks are paying for it, but they actually haven't been connected in a real way, and survey after survey has shown that people of color aren't using this amenity. So if they use some of these funds to help that, that'd be great, but we're not directing them to do that. So just to be clear about that. So uh, a couple of years ago, we did an analysis and found that people of color weren't using the parks, and, they were, and we did a lot of focus groups with them to find out why. Well, why weren't you using the parks? And part of it was that uh, the parks weren't set up for them, weren't set up culturally for them in many ways. And so there were a number of recommendations came out to, to support that. We did get a lot of resistance uh, from various uh, 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 park agencies around asking the question. Uh, but in reality, when you look at the demographics of our community, uh, they should be embracing this because, you know, I hate to tell you, but white people aren't having babies. Right? It is people of color that are going to be the majority over time in this community. And if we don't create structures and opportunity and places for them to be, uh, and we continue to, to design them in the way that we've designed them, not for those folks, uh, then they're not going to be able to participate. And you know what? People won't be investing in our parks because they won't see themselves in the parks. So that's really what that was about, if that's helpful to you, Eric. 
But there's a there's an interesting. I, I do want to jump because uh, as a public policy question, I think that there's an interesting chicken and egg question here in terms of how much is uh, the work from uh, a place like the Met Council about accommodating or uh, creating the space for things that people are demanding or want uh, from particular communities, and how much is it that you're trying to drive behavior in one direction or another? Well, I don't think it's so much about driving behavior. It really is about structures and systems. My belief is that you're soft on people and hard on structures. So when I say that, meaning that if, if things are designed to get a certain result and they continue to get that result, then we need to change that structure. And within that, there's going to be people that are, are in that. We're not, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to behave or not to behave. I'm saying, hey, if we're going to put all uh, millions and hundreds of million dollars into our regional parks, everybody should use them, right? That's all I'm saying is that everybody should have the opportunity. And if you have connections and relationships to those parks that aren't the same for some groups because of these issues of racial segregation, et cetera, or because of history of those folks not participating in those systems at all, then we need to change that. We need to actually say these parks are for everyone. So. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. All kinds of hands over here that I've been ignoring. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Um, Rebecca. Hi, Gary. Hi. Um, so to your point about um, different communities, one thing that I have seen happen, my brother used to live in Chicago. I have uh, lived in Chicago. My kids went and did mission trips at Cabrini Green, which no longer exists because it's gentrification. Mm -hmm. So when, how are we, how is Met Council going to help um, when you increase transit? And first of all, I think you've got to connect North Minneapolis to the rest of the city. When we went to go to passes, the kids who had the hardest time getting anywhere was North Minneapolis mm -hmm. because there wasn't a direct route. Yep. Anywhere. You had to go downtown to go anywhere That's right. from North Minneapolis. So then we, the LRT is southwest, or this is southwest or southeast. It's not happening in north. But how do you then build that and, al and allow the community to flourish, the community that's there, and not gentrify? Because you know what? All these folks, when they gentrify, we are going to be a wider community. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that in Minneapolis public schools as our racial demographics go down because people are staying and people are buying in Uptown and North Loop is getting wealthy. Yeah, it's a, it is a conundrum. Here's, here's, here's what I think. And I've been, uh, you know, when I was director of planning and development for Hennepin County, I actually tried to get the county to think about this. So uh, there is a, there, uh, Montgomery County, Maryland actually institutes something called inclusionary zoning. So that means that if you build high rent housing, that you build affordable housing with it and it becomes a requirement. That's how you make sure that you create safe, stable, affordable housing at the same time in your development. So if you look along uh, the Greenway, there's hardly any affordable housing in that development that's going on there. And so the, it becomes, you know, very upscale, up, upper income. Now, I was on the original group that started the Greenway, believe it or not. And we envisioned this economic development, but we envisioned it so that it happens for everyone, not just one group. So one way to get there is to try to think about including, and, and we've been very reluctant to do this, 
more reluctant than other places around the country to say, you know, we're going to make sure that we create safe, decent, affordable housing within these structures and then require the development community to figure it out they've done it other places. We just won't do it here. And so that's one of the things that we can do. I think the other thing is when we think about affordable housing, uh, if we continue to build just low-income housing in North Minneapolis or in Phillips neighborhood, and we don't build it in throughout the area, throughout the community in a way that everybody actually shares in both the burdens and benefits that come with both affordable and the uh, expansion we have. So we need both of those things happening at the same time. Uh, it, so if we continue down the road we are, we will continue to segregate. So, you know, I basically said at the council, I'm not going to vote again for any affordable housing going into these low-income communities without there being some other methodology that we're going to have to ensure that we create mixed-income communities. Because if I do, then all I'm doing is being part of the exacerbation of the segregated system that we've created. And it's segregation, right, that sits at the bottom of what's going on here. It's this issue that I don't want my kids mixing with your kids. I don't want my... Uh, uh, I don't want to be involved with you in any way, so I want to wall myself off from other people. Uh, and so we act like they're somehow different because of they have more melanin in their skin than I might have. And that's really what we've done because, I, you know, when you look at all of the data on human beings, they come out pretty, you know, when they're out, you know, you look at a little baby over here that's brown and you look at a little baby that's white, those babies are pretty equal. It's, a, it's all the stuff we put on those babies that create the, the situation we have. So I'm not trying to make anybody bad, right? I mean, part of the problem we have is that we're making each other bad. And so we can't even talk about these issues without making it. You're a white supremacist. You're, you know, and white people get to the point they can't even talk about it, right? They can't even express their opinion about it. Right, because then if you express your opinion, then you're a white supremacist, blah, 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 blah. We need to move away from that. Okay, it's time for one last question. Okay, Christy. Hi, Christy. Um, I have a question as far as, you know, it's a really powerful conversation, but how do we get more diversity in the audience? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that uh, that's, that's uh, above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I don't know if you can look at an audience and tell what they are, right? Meaning because people have different heritage. I have a lot of white in me, and people don't realize that, right? And so they think I'm just black, right? We are complex. In fact, the fastest growing group in America is biracial. Did you know that? So in the next 50 years, we're going to solve some of these issues simply because there's going to be so many biracial people that look at things differently, right? I have a little grand, uh, my grand, two granddaughters are, are biracial, and they look at the world totally different because they, they don't have allegiance to their white parents and then allegiance to their black parents. They have allegiance to both of their parents. They grow up with this. I Mixed identity. I think a, a maybe a broader way to think about that, which we think about a lot with this show, is uh, how uh, I worry sometimes that we have these conversations and they're very important, but we know the people who show up to these conversations. So how do you get? Uh, how do you bring sort of this kind of conversation, these issues, 
broader, how beyond. Many show, how many shows have you done in North Minneapolis? It's a good question. We've only done a handful. That's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. How many have you done in, uh, you know, I mean, right here in this neighborhood, this is actually right on the edge of a concentrated area of poverty. You're sitting on the edge of this area that has all these la- poor, low-income, mostly Latino, Somali, African-American, et cetera. Right here, right, uh, I think you could actually uh, work out a deal with those communities to actually have them participate in these things. But you have to be different than you are right now. Oh, God. That's, um, hard. That's the hard part, right? You can't be who you are and get different results. If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to get the same results. Okay, so uh, we're out of time, but since you're here, I, I have to ask you one last sort of uh, completely tangential, has nothing to do with this important conversation question, which is, uh, as many people probably know, you are, you're the husband of our mayor here in Minneapolis. So you're Wonderful a, mayor uh, of Minneapolis. Whoa, give it up for the mayor! So, uh, so that makes you technically uh, you're you're a first gentleman for the city of Minneapolis, and it's very likely. I think that really means something in New York, Minneapolis. It really doesn't mean much. Well, I, <laughs> just assume the mantle. Be something different than you are, and. Uh, but uh, so it it seems very it seems very probable, more likely than not, that they will have a first gentleman for the United States. So if you have advice for Bill Clinton and how to be Whoa. a proper first gentleman, well, Bill's a little different. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I don't know what proper first gentleman because this is all new to me. Sure. Although I can Being tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you that um, the first thing is to be supportive of the first uh, mayor. Mayor, yeah, the first mayor, yeah, the first the mayor. lady, yeah. Uh, but but to, to actually be in her corner. So that's what he needs to be. And Bill has kind of a problem there, as you could tell recently. Uh, so he, he, you know, I mean, the, the real thing is to be there for that person. And not to be there in the political world, but to be there as that person's better half. Well, that is a whole other show, uh, but I appreciate you (laughs) answering the question. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause. Gary Cunningham. Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks.